Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the Actus podcast, Talking CDI, the nation's only program dedicated to the clinical documentation integrity profession. Today, Wednesday, April 1st, we're bringing you another special edition of the Actus podcast, our bi-weekly program dedicated to bring you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and Actus. My name is Brian Murphy, Director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Integrity Specialists, and I'm your host for today's program, Sepsis Cytokine Release Syndrome and COVID-19. I'm joined today by my familiar co-host, Laurie Prescott. Laurie is the CDI Education Director for us here at Actus and HC Pro. She's the lead developer and instructor for our CDI Bootcamp line a subject matter expert for ACTUS, and a member of our CCDSO exam certification committee and ACTUS advisory board. You've probably seen Laurie around the circuit quite a bit. She's a frequent speaker on this program, our conferences, webinars, author of our clinical documentation improvement specialist complete training guide and the 2020 ACTUS pocket guide series. And we're thrilled to have her back on the program. So welcome, Laurie. Thanks, Brian. Glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next, I'd like to introduce our special guest today. Uh, Cesar Limhoco, MD, is the Chief Medical Officer of T-Medicus LLC. For more than 25 years, Dr. Limhoco has delivered clinical documentation integrity services to hospitals across the country. He's built a solid reputation of integrity and accuracy through a commitment to documentation and coding excellence built on the solid foundation of the clinical truth. You may recall we had Cesar on a show with us back in January on the clinical truth. Uh, his career path has brought him to a work for a regional hospital association, a big four consulting firm, and a quality improvement organization. Uh, like Laurie, he's been very busy in the active circuit. He's presented at our national conference, AHIMA conferences, various state and local HFMA and HCCA conferences. Uh, editorial board member of the ICD-10 Monitor. He's also a member of our Actus Regulatory Committee, which is how we ended up on today's show, and we're, we're very pleased to have him. So welcome, Cesar. Thank you, Brian. Okay. Before we get started, um, today's topic is uh, uh, an addition to the podcast. So our next scheduled show was going to be April 8th. That show will still be on. Uh, but we wanted to add today's topic because there's been a lot of confusion in the industry on uh, cytokine release syndrome and and uh, COVID-19 and accuracy of reporting and documentation of, of this condition. So we're going to uh, hopefully clarify some of that today and, and get this podcast out for our audience. Um, as as um, I've noted on the last couple shows, we are pre-recording the podcast momentarily because of some of the usage issues we've seen around this platform. Um, so we're hoping to get through a complete show today and then and then share the recording with our with our audience. Um, so again, we're in the middle of a national pandemic. We've got a lot going on uh, on the front lines of healthcare. It's getting pretty hairy out there. Um, we we are hoping and wishing for the best for all of our front frontline providers. We've also seen uh, significant impact to the CDI industry as folks work from home 
but we're hearing about folks that are being asked to um, pitch in with a lot of non-traditional CDI duties, which is admirable. Uh, some of them are even um, in in a queue or on in a in a uh, pool for potential return to the bedside. So a lot a lot more to come in the coming weeks as COVID-19 does. Uh, reach the top of what we hope is the top of the curve before it begins to flatten out. Um, so I was hoping, Cesar, before we get into the specifics of the topic today, if you could just talk a little bit about your own experiences with COVID-19. You know, I hope you and your family and, and all your colleagues at uh, at Team Medicus are, are doing okay in the middle of this. Um, just I'm curious from your physician perspective, uh, what you're hearing and, and how maybe this has personally impacted you and into your own business. Yes, Brian, uh, COVID-19 has hit um, hard and personally. Um, I have a um, fraternity brother from pre-med who just um, died of COVID-19 um, oh, a day ago. I'm sorry. And his wife is also in the ICU. Um, my nephew, who is an emergency medicine physician, as well as a critical care physician, is now in quarantine because um, of a patient who came in uh, who had a history of heart failure, had short of breath, and for all intents and purposes, was having an exacerbation of the heart failure. And, you know, history was clean. Supposedly there was no fever, no cough, no nothing. So they proceeded to take care of this patient's heart failure patient. But later on, they found out that after um, monitoring the patient and getting more history, the patient did have fever and turned out to have COVID-19. So wow. that really gives you uh, a little bit of a window of what we're dealing out here. All the things that we've heard about um, COVID-19, about the symptomatology, its presentations, all those clues that are supposedly out there, that's good for about the majority of COVID-19 patients. But there will be atypical um, presentations, and this is one of them. Um, this patient uh, was not placed in COVID isolation because it was heart failure. The cardiologist said it was heart failure. So my nephew, a couple of residents, interns, nurses, and respiratory therapists were sent home to quarantine because of the exposure. So, you know, um, it's 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 a story that I want to put out there because we're all looking for ways to capture COVID-19 in data. And there will be a typical presentation. Um, there will be typical presentations, but uh, we just have to be open to it. And the only way we can make sure that the data is correct is to make sure that the narrative is true that it follows the pathogenesis of the disease process. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think that's a very good um, rule of thumb for everybody out there. You know, we get lost in definitions, criteria, protocols, uh, 
coding guidelines and conventions. But all of this stuff is really meant to get us to the clinical truth. That's the foundation. If yep. we know, if we're literate about the pathogenesis of the disease process, the better we are in, in, the, in, in enabling the true representation of that disease in data. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cesar, thank you for sharing that story. I think it's an important one um, for people to hear. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. And uh, your nephew and his coworkers are in my prayers. Now, as we um, start talking about our topic today, um, it is a, it's pretty, it's a deep clinical dive that we're going to do today. So I'm hoping you can um, help kind of lay the foundation for us. We've heard that um, most COVID-19 patients may not need acute inpatient care admission. So we're, um, the, only the sickest um, are going to lead to a hospital bed and um, from my understanding, these are the patients who undergo the cytokine storm, also referred to as a cytokine release syndrome or CRS syndrome. That's often how we see it in the chart. And they develop the um, secondary hemophagocytic lymphohistocytosis or HLH. HLH is a whole lot easier to say, <laughs> which, which, um, which causes farts. So, you know, it's almost a domino effect of how this works. Can you um, explain for our audience the cytokine storm and the secondary HLH process? Sure. Um, first of all, I think I want to share a, another story with you guys, and it's not necessarily COVID-19, but um, at the beginning of the podcast, um, Brian had mentioned sepsis cytokine strong, uh, storm, uh, HLH, um, and this, will, this narrative kind of puts it in perspective. Um, I actually spoke with my cousin a few days ago because I was going to share this narrative and he said it was okay. And it's a story about my, my aunt. Um, um, about many years ago, she came home um, to visit um, and she, she's a, a very healthy, active, no, no coexisting conditions. And um, as a homecoming celebration, we go into, of course, um, food fests and uh, rich food, which is really good. But I guess she overdid it a little bit and she got sick. She got sick to her stomach and uh, so, so sick that she was admitted to the hospital. Impression was food poisoning. Two days later, a couple of days later, she ended up dead. And I was, we were all devastated because, you know, food poisoning and then death. Right. It was kind of a weird story. I mean, how could... It normally you don't have a patient with food poisoning die from food poisoning, especially when there are no pre-existing conditions. So I dug deeper and the story I got was she went into septic shock and died. So, okay, now I know she died. But then I still have like um, 
a big gap there from food poisoning to sepsis and septic shock. So I dug deeper and somebody told me that she had acute pancreatitis, which was the source of the severe abdominal pain that was unrelenting, that necessitated the hospital admission, and later on went into septic shock. So the moral lesson to this story is is this. we usually use terms that are familiar. And familiar, familiar words like septic shock are words that docs would use because this makes sense in relating the narrative to family members and so forth. But when you look at it technically, it's not really septic shock. It's really acute pancreatitis which led to a systemic inflammatory response syndrome, which right. led into a shock due to SIRS. But you can understand that as docs were used to calling a patient who comes in who crashes, and we know that the patient issues in shock, a septic shock. It's not cardiogenic shock. It's not hypo, hyper, you know, hypovolemic shock. It's not, it's, what we call it is septic shock. But really, there was no infection. It's an inflammation that caused the systemic inflammatory response syndrome, which then led to severe sepsis and death in septic shock. I'm sharing this narrative because COVID-19 is um, what also you call a novel virus. It's a new virus that is infecting the human population. And because the human, because it's a new virus, a new disease process, people, especially physicians, will call it terms that are familiar. Right. Okay. So let's go back to, um, well, talk about what sepsis is. Because I thought my, my aunt had sepsis and septic shock. As you and I and everybody knows, sepsis is the body's overwhelming and life-threatening response to infection, which can lead to organ failure and death. In other words, it's your body's overactive and toxic response to infection. Usually, our immune system works to fight germs like bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites, prevent infection. But when it overreacts, it becomes toxic. And instead of doing its job, it starts to go against its own self. Now, what's the mediator for this toxic response? Well, that's the cytokines or cytokines or cytokines or cytokines are proteins that are released from a cell, a cell that may have been damaged or may have been inflamed or may have been infected. These cytokines act as a cellular signal. It sends signals to the immune system to draw the immune system cells to the area of infection, trauma, or inflammation to fight the disease process. The immune cells themselves—I mean, the, the, the immune cells that come also that come to the area—will also release more cytokines. And, you know, 
Soon enough, you may have an overwhelming response, much more than what's needed to prevent infection, and that's what sepsis is. So it gives you an idea now. I, mean, I, I don't think sepsis in the past in the industry has been called a cytokine storm, but actually it's in published peer-reviewed literature. Um, and I would like to share one of them with you. Cecius, this is from uh, the National Institute of Health, um, uh, which was published from the seminars in immunopathology in May 2017. And the title of the article is Cytokine Storm and Sepsis Disease Pathogenesis. And it goes, and I quote, sepsis is a severe clinical syndrome related to the host response to infection. The severity of infections is due to an activation cascade that will lead to an auto-amplifying cytokine production, colon, the cytokine storm. Right. Cytokine storm is what's happening in sepsis. But it's not the only place where it happens, not just sepsis. It happens in other stuff. As I said earlier, cells will release cytokines when they're injured, when they're inflamed, or they're infected, or due to certain drugs. And that's where, where it actually first started. Cytokine storms first, start, uh, first came into literature in the 1990s. Um, and, it's, um, and I quote um, and from another journal, so Journal of Immunotherapy of Cancer says, CRS is a systemic inflammatory response that can be triggered by a variety of factors such as infections mm -hmm. and certain drugs. CRS was first coined in the 90s um, when um, a, an anti-T cell antibody was introduced as an immunosuppressive treatment for solid organ transplantation. Subsequently, it's been described in other antibody-based therapies. Um, it's also been observed following administration of cancer drugs such as oxyplatin and lenalidomide. It's also been reported in settings of donor stem cell transplantation and graft versus heart disease. And cytokine storm due to massive T-cell stimulation is also seen now as a bathroom mechanism of severe, severe viral infections such as influenza. So it gives you an idea of this cytokine storm, which was also termed the cytokine release syndrome, is really the thing that's behind what's happening in all of these things that I mentioned, I mentioned about. Now, um, I don't know if I answered your question, Lori, but did, <laughs> Was there anything else that I forgot to mention? <laughs> no, I think I think the the message that I'm getting from you is there are multiple contributing factors to CRS, and that we have to understand the etiology so that we can yes. get to the make sure that we are getting to the clinical truth. That's what I'm getting from what you're talking. Did I get the message right. correct? Yes. Yes. I think you had a secondary question about 
about COVID-19 and HLH, right? Should uh, I go into that at this point? You know, I can't even remember what my question was. I'm looking. <laughs> I'm, Brian, well, do you want to pick up with, yeah, with your I'll, question? And uh, I'll hop back in here with another question I prepared for the show, Cesar. Maybe this will get us there, um, sort of on the coding and... Uh, you had been mentioning how, so CRS is coded to sepsis, non-infectious SIRS, uh, macrophage activation syndrome, uh, mass, and HLH. Can I stop you right there? Yes, absolutely. Um, Brian, you mentioned MAS, but for the sake of our audience, MAS is not a very um, common terminology. And the reason why is macrophage activation syndrome is usually seen in the pediatric population. Okay specifically pediatric population that has a rheumatic disease. And this MAS is just like what I mentioned before, it creates this rheumatic disease, creates a cytokine storm, which leads to organ failure, multi-organ failure and death in the pediatric age population. I just thought I'd throw that in. Okay. And go ahead. No, and and yeah, that's that's great. And you mentioned how there are specific codes for those. They follow similar path pathophysiology, and they can often be confused for one another, um, making it more complex. Apparently, physicians will use these terms as synonyms. Um, they might use the term septic shock in patients who go into shock for non-infectious SIRS, i.e., no infection. So apparently, what happens is when CDSs, coding professionals see septic shock, they can come to the wrong conclusion that the patient has sepsis when really it's non-infection SIRS. And the same scenario can happen in COVID-19 with um, HLH, which may lead to confusion, queries, inappropriate coding of uh, CRS and sepsis uh, in, in, in this typical CDI mission to capture more severity of illness in CCs and MCCs. So, what, just boiling things down, what what does CDI specialists need to do to, to what do they what do they need to clarify with the physician to really arrive at, at the correct codes for this uh, for this syndrome when it's when it when appropriate? Okay, good question. Um, let me step back a little bit, go back and and say that um, I had mentioned at the outset about familiar, familiar words. And because COVID-19 is a novel, you know, novel disease, a new disease. So docs will be going back to what's familiar to them. When a patient presents to the, ho the hospital uh, and may present with signs and symptoms which are similar to what they see in another thing, they will call it that term. So they may call this patient a sepsis they may call this patient who actually crashes as having going into septic shock. But after study, they realize that it's due to COVID-19, you know, the patient tests positive and, you know, all the, all the boxes are checked and yes, the patient has COVID-19. But still the term of sepsis and septic shock is there. So it will make you know, misdirect CDI, uh, CDI specialists and coders to think, wait a minute, does the patient have sepsis? Or does the patient have COVID-19? Or is COVID-19 sepsis? Some have even called it um, viral sepsis. So let me, let me 
put it into perspective, what they've seen in COVID-19 is, um, well, first of all, as Laurie had mentioned before, the majority of patients will have mild to moderate disease. Uh, let's say, let's put a number that's about 80, 80 to 90%, 85%, let's say. So 15% will become really sick. And the pathogenic, the pathophysiology in, in this patients who become sick is this, in, they go into this, what is now known as secondary HLH, which is hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. And let me quote you um, uh, terminology from the Journal of Investigative Medicine from April to June of 2016, entitled Weathering a Cytokine Storm. And I quote, secondary HLH is difficult to identify and a diagnosis is often missed as it can mimic the systemic inflammatory response syndrome or sepsis. Boom. <laughs> Therefore, it makes us really, I mean, it behooves us to make this distinction because there are definite distinctions between HLH and sepsis and non-infectious SIRS. So that's that's our that's our mission really. You know, and, and we have to be careful because the docs will be again going back to what the familiar terminology is. Because that's just the way it is. Yep. You don't tell the patient or the patient's family, oh, he has COVID nineteen and went to secondary hemophagocytic lymphohistocytosis. He said, <laughs> What? What the hell are you talking about? They will be talking, they'll be saying terms like vile sepsis, septic shock in the picture of COVID-19. But do we, do we actually code them? Do we code the vile sepsis? Well, think of it that way. Coding convention has always maintained that if you have a specific code for a condition, you don't code the different things that go into that condition or syndrome. Therefore, you know, a very common uh, thing is that if a patient has chest pain due to acute coronary syndrome, we don't code the chest pain, right? Because it's already in acute coronary syndrome. Same thing with sepsis. We don't code the fever, the tachycardia, the leukocytosis, the, 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 because it's already included in sepsis. What do we code in addition to sepsis? I think that are not part and parcel. For example, when the patient in severe sepsis, MSS has different manifestations that may or may not be uh, always there. Right. Same thing with HLH. HLH, uh, and I wrote about this, and it, and it, um, I would, um, I would um, recommend to our viewers, I mean to our listeners, that I, um, I have, a, I have articles on HLH and COVID nineteen. And um, I think on, uh, on LinkedIn, yeah, right. The HLH is uh, is is um, is is there also. HLH is a type of cytokine storm syndrome characterized by fever, hepatosplenomegaly, cytopenia, and progressive multiple organ failure. And um, just like sepsis, there's um, there's a criteria. If five of the following eight criteria 
is is satisfied is indicative of HLH. It's fever, splenomegaly, cytopenia, hypertriglyceridemia with hypofibrinogenemia. Uh, you can have hemophagocytosis cytosis in biopsy. You can have low or absent natural killer cell activity. You will have hyperfertinemia and elevated soluble CD25 receptor. So five of those eight criteria, that's HLH. But when you see the, the, the you know, this, this disease HLH, and it's defined as a type of a cytokine storm syndrome characterized by fever, blah, blah, blah. What it's describing is really a patient with viral sepsis plus hepatosplenomegaly, cytopenia, hypertriglyceridemia. So it's, it's, it's already included in the term HLH. But how many docs do you think will write or even enunciate hemophagocytic lymphohistocytosis? That really presents a source of confusion in, in clinical documentation integrity and also coding. And I can see across the country, everybody will be just all over the place, coding sepsis, coding CRS. Co By the way, uh, as I mentioned before, the cytokine storm or CRS was first diagnosed or seen in the 1990s. In, in, in the immunosuppressive therapies for cancer. I'm, I'm saying this because there's a coding clinic guideline which says that if CRS is due to blah, 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 you code it to the tumor lysis syndrome. Mm -hmm. yep. But it's specific to tumor lysis syndrome. Right. Okay. And it's not indicative that when the patient has COVID-19, the patient has tumor lysis syndrome. Right. It's a different pathogenesis. It is a different disease entity, maybe similar pathogenesis, but different. So again, you know, CRS and cytokine syndrome, they are the same thing, you know. It's just that the way it presented itself in history was it was in a different context. And that's what's important in, in this industry is to make sure that we know what the intent and what the context is in those coding guidelines, definitions, protocols, criteria. Mm -hmm. Because then, we can get we can get lost in all the trees and forget to see the mountain. Right. And there's there's a lot of confusion out there, Caesar. Um, you know, you shared with us as we were discussing this topic that the modes of therapy and mortality rates are going to differ depending on what's actually happening with the patient. Um, that article um, by NIH states that secondary HLH features um, can commonly be found in patients with sepsis, SIRS, multi-organ dysfunction, macrophage activation syndrome, and the therapeutic options for each of these is going to be different. Our, our plans of treatment are going to be different for these patients and the outcomes and the mortality are going to be different. rate exactly it's that's what i was getting to yeah the outcomes are going to be different with varying mortality rates so you know as we're going through this process and people are confused they're confused as exactly what they're treating they're confused about what codes should be assigned 
are we, um, and I know the answer to this, so I'm a little sad, but are we risking inaccurate mortality statistical data on these patients and cost data? Are, are we going to walk away from the next few months to a year and have accurate data that we can utilize? This is so true, Lori. Again, I want to um, quote something from the, that Journal of Investigative Medicine um, article entitled Weathering a Cytokine Storm. It says, because of probable underdiagnosis, the true incidence and prevalence of HLH in adults are unknown given insufficient epidemiologic data. And if left untreated, disease is frequently fatal. So it really behooves us to be more proactive in capturing HLH. And not only that, it's also differentiating that from, from sepsis. Because, because COVID-19 has this damaging effect to the immune system of the body. And because of the damage to the immune system, it also in, predisposes it to a higher risk of superinfection, like a secondary bacterial infection, which will develop into bacterial sepsis. If we are going to capture sepsis with HLH and COVID-19, data will not be able to show to us which among these cases actually underwent a secondary bacterial infection. It's going to be muddied. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good stuff, Cesar. I'm, I'm sharing the article you mentioned, you shared from the NIH. Um, I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to cover on this topic. I, I, I did want to also mention um, we have some new some new coding guidelines that Laurie had shared with us this morning. This is right from the CDC. Uh, we have been sharing these on the website, but basically um, the way that COVID-19 should be coded. Um, Laurie, is there anything you want to say about this? I know we, we were happy with it because of the, the ability to code COVID-19 from the physician statement not needing a confirmed lab result. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with with the infrequency or inconsistency with testing, um, it's nice to finally have it in print because um, there were a lot of disagreement out there in the world as to when it could be coded as a definite. It's coded based on a definitive statement by the physician. So the physician um, can certainly um, put together the patient's history of exposure and presentation and response to treatment and formulate a diagnosis of COVID-19, even if there's not a positive test. So that was helpful. Um, I would suggest That's a very everybody, good point, Lori. I, That's you know, a very good point, Lori. Sometimes I have brilliant, <laughs> because, brilliant thoughts there, Cesar. Um, the, the other people, I just wanted, I just wanted to add to that in, in that, um, you know, a, pos a, a COVID-19 test is not 100% accurate. Um, I actually um, reposted or reshared an article about the, um, the, the rate of success of positive um, COVID testing. It depends on, on the test, 
but even the most accurate tests we have now will still have false negatives and will have false positives. And if we are going to fully depend on the test to say the patient has COVID-19, we were going to miss patients that right. are actually having COVID-19 and are dying from it. And, you know, as a physician, when you have a patient who uh, who comes to you and presents with 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 a picture that is consistent with COVID-19 or whatever disease process. The positive test, it's like a, it's just a plus, but it's not going to be fully um, ruling out what you really have in front of you. Mm -hmm. So you may have patients who will actually test negative for the COVID-19, but are coming, but comes to get, comes to you with a classic picture of a COVID-19 patient who is in acute respiratory distress syndrome. All the laboratory findings, all the x-ray findings of patients um, having COVID-19. And you have ruled out all the other things that may cause this kind of presentation. That does not rule out the patient has COVID-19. Right, right. I thought I'd add that. Yep. I'm glad you did. And I think that's important. The other piece I want to stress to people when they're reading this is please go right to the source. Go to, go to CMS or um, the AHA or CDC releases that are talking about this. Um, because we've gotten three or four transmittals over the last week from CMS, um, what you heard three days ago may not be accurate right now as to how to report this. Um, and I'm seeing right. a lot of traffic like this on social media, and I'm getting a lot of emails saying, hey, but I was told this two days ago. What am I supposed to do? It's changing day by day. Hopefully this last transmittal um, will set, set a lot of it straight. Um, but if you feel like you're getting conflicting direction, maybe something I told you a week ago or something somebody else told you three days ago and you're not sure, go straight to the source. Look at what CMS is saying and check the dates because um, there may have been a transmittal that was sent out since the last time your questions were answered. Yep. Um, hopefully this direction is going to settle down now, um, but I know that people are confused because we're getting yanked in 50 different directions. Um, yep. So. I want people to go to the source, read it, and um, we have it on our website, so. Yeah. We also have to be mindful that because we are in this global pandemic and physicians are really overwhelmed and overburdened. Absolutely. We have to, we have to um, do, as Brian would say, a cost-benefit analysis as to <laughs> when to put forth a query or not. And there are times that you really don't, you know, if, if I'm going to be asked if the patient really has, um, has viral sepsis uh, in this patient with um, COVID-19 with secondary HLH all the time, you know, it, it, it can be a little, you know, it's going to be counterproductive. Right. But if we know that viral sepsis is part and parcel of this HLH, it's part of the definition, you know. Yep. Do we really need to ask if this has this if doc if do you really mean a bile sepsis or was it really HLH? 
you know, those are the kinds of things that on a practical basis, on a real world basis, needs to be um, pondered. Don't you think, Lori? I do. I, I think um, I think you're right that people have to be very sensitive to the physicians right now and how often we're hitting them. You know, some, some organizations have actually stopped query um, for physicians. Um, but my suggestion might be is, you know, take what we've discussed today and if you can get that physician for just a quick conversation somewhere along the line and say, you know, this is what I'm understanding. Is this correct? What do you think? You know, and start because every time we have a conversation, we're educating each other. Um, yeah. So, you know, when when you're in the hot mess of it, it may not be the time to have that conversation. Um, but this, you know, as things start to settle down, we're still going to be seeing these patients um, for many, many months. So um, we have to continually educate ourselves. And when we get those chances to have these conversations with physicians, do it um, so that we can both learn and, right. and hopefully, hopefully protect the integrity of that data. Yep. So I was just going to wrap up here, and we, we appreciate you joining us on the show today, Cesar. This is great uh, material and hopefully shed some light on a, a, some tricky clinical issues. Um, we're, we're asking at this time just our ACTUS community and the CDI community uh, more broadly, uh, how can we help you? Uh, very simple question. We know that we have, there's a lot going on right now, um, the clinical and coding issues, but aside from that, uh, we're hearing from CDI professionals that are uh, struggling with the new work from home environment, which is not as easy as you'd think, especially when your whole family's at home. Um, we've heard about possible furloughs, even layoffs, um, as as hospitals shift their care to the front lines, the clinical front lines, and remove um, or pare back on some of the uh, folks that aren't directly involved with clinical care, which may, be, may include CDI professionals. Um, lots going on, and so actually some of it is is very interesting and innovative. You know, we, we're hearing from programs that are switching rapidly and rapidly expanding their telehealth services and using their CDI professionals to review telehealth transcripts, transcript calls between the provider and the patient. A um, lot happening that, that COVID-19 has changed already in the landscape, and we expect will make permanent impacts uh, on the healthcare profession. So what we're asking now is just how can we help you? What are, what's, what's happening in your in your hospital or in your organization? And what can Actus provide you to help get you through these times? You know, we're, we're, we pride ourselves on being a storing house of information, uh, great programming like we had today, articles, um, where we've got some great tip sheets out, Another one just came in today from uh, Dr. Erica Reamer, who's on our advisory board that we're providing our members. Uh, but if there's anything that you need that we can help you with, uh, this screen here has an email address. We've gotten a number of emails already from our members, actus-inquiries uh, at simplifycompliance.com um, that will automatically populate the line with COVID-19 response. Uh, and let us know how we can help you, and we'll do our best to meet your needs. Brian? Yes. Can I just add something? Absolutely. I, in, in order to 
stem the confusion. Uh, what I've been doing personally also, I've been reaching out to chief medical officers, medical directors of hospitals across the country. And um, I've been sharing with them uh, one of my articles on COVID-19 um, with the codes in it to kind of help them understand and help them navigate um, the clinical documentation aspects, and also the, uh, to, under, to see what the codes are that comes with it. Um, and I would suggest that probably the CDI specialists, um, you know, that are listening to this would like to do the same, because it's really a matter of education. Um, the more informed the providers are in what this is all about, the better it is and the less questions there will be. So, and it will be most helpful. All right. Well, where can people find you, Cesar, on, on social media? I know you're, you're out there quite a bit on LinkedIn, Facebook. Any, any place in particular they should look for your articles? Most, if not all, are on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, okay. So Cesar Limhoko on LinkedIn. We'll, we'll make a note of that, and we are going to be publishing one of your pieces, Cesar, as well as the podcast here. So again, I want to thank you for being on the show. Um, our next episode is up here on the screen. We're going to be uh, going back into population health, which is another new area that CDI is starting to get involved in. Uh, this will be back on next week. We're hoping to be going live again. Um, hopefully, technology will permit us to do that. But as a reminder, you can listen to the show uh, recordings anytime on our website or your, via your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify. Um, we do provide all the links during today's show in the show notes. If you do have any suggestions, ideas for future guests, uh, anything you'd like to see on COVID-19 or otherwise, you can send me an email at bmurphy at actus.org. That will do it for today, everyone. By the way, Brian? Yes. Yes, Brian. Just one last thing. The uh, links to the articles that I mentioned are in that article that you're going to be publishing. Oh, good, good. We'll, we'll, we will, um, yeah, make sure we get the word out about that. That's very helpful of you, Cesar. So we'll see everyone back here in a week and uh, stay healthy and safe. We're thinking of you every day. You're the CDI professional. And um, as you navigate these difficult times, we'll see you back here again in one week. Take care, everyone.